So before we get into this podcast, I must give a shout out to the editor of my novel and friend, Pip Wallace. Pip helped me research today's guest author, Dave Butler. Pip, thank you. Please let me know a bottle of red or a bottle of white, or maybe our listeners will say both. So now, as I used to say to my UVic fitness participants in my boot camp class, let's do this. fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. This is episode seven. Now I don't think Ozzy will steal the show today like he did when Brian Richmond of Blue Devil Books was on because I bribed him. Ozzy that is not Brian. Ozzy has peanut butter in his dog toy and doesn't really care about me right now. Okay, so my name is Joanna and I am your host. Thank you for joining me. Today's guest is the author behind the Jenny Wilson Eco Mystery Series, Dave Butler. Dave's writing and photography has appeared in numerous Canadian publications. Dave's first novel, Full Curl, was the winner of the 2018 Arthur Ellis Award for Best First Crime Novel. Dave is also the recipient of the 2012 Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me on today. You're welcome. Before we get into your novels and how you write, can you tell our listeners how it came about that you received the 2012 Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal? (laughs) Well, thanks for asking. Um, I guess it was in about 2011 or so, I was actually given the opportunity by the tourism industry in British Columbia to uh, lead a team of colleagues in negotiations with the BC government to we were basically trying to repatriate, I guess is the word I would use, a tourism BC from the government and getting it back into a crown corporation. They changed the old tourism BC uh, and moved it into government. And we were hopeful to try and get it back out again where the industry had more of a say in how the organization would work. So we worked through over, I guess, almost a year and we were successful leading this team in uh, doing that. And we actually led to what is now called uh, Destination BC. So because of my work in leading a team of amazing colleagues, we were actually able to, to achieve that. And I was given that uh, the medal and recognition of my efforts around that, that project. Congratulations. So yeah, thanks so much. You see, uh, yeah, Destination BC, that's right. That's what you see. Well, way to go. Well, thank think, you. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll be getting more into that as it relates to your, your work and your novels. 
Now, I understand you are a registered professional forester and a registered professional biologist. Could you highlight a few of the eco-type roles you have been involved in? Ah, good question. Um, well, I came out of UBC with a forestry degree, but I was kind of a unique animal in that, no pun intended, because I actually did my degree in wildlife management at the time. So I came out of forestry with a wildlife um, management degree and a thesis, actually. But since that time, I worked for uh, government in fish and wildlife management. I've worked for P uh, BC Parks, and I was also warden in Banff National Park, which we'll talk more about later, I'm sure. Um, so now I'm actually the director of sustainability at Canadian Mountain Holidays, CMH, which is the world's first and most experienced helicopter skiing and hiking company. So I do a lot of ecological work, environmental work, land use, government relations, that kind of thing. So it's all really led to a really interesting career along the way. Yes, yes, that sounds really, really interesting. So you you are also now a part of the Adventure Travel Trade Associations. Now is that Adventure EDU? How, how would I pronounce that? Yeah, that's correct. The Adventure EDU oh. program, that's right. Okay. And you're a consulting tourism educator. What does that involve? Well, as you can imagine, um, if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have given you a bit of a different answer. It, things are pretty quiet on that front in the middle of this pandemic. Um, the Adventure EDU team is really a group of professionals that that the uh, the ATTA, the Adventure Travel Trade Association, which is based out of the U.S., can send to developing or developed destinations around the world to provide advice to them on, you know, and training, I guess, on how to develop their adventure tourism sectors in, in their areas. So, you know, through that, I've been involved in that uh, over a number of years, and I've had a really wonderful opportunity, I guess, to, to, to meet some amazing people and also to travel to some really remote places in, in Namibia, Sweden, Norway, and even Jordan in the Middle East. And basically in every one of those places, we just went in and just gave them our experience and advice on how they could start to pivot their tourism um, businesses and sectors looking more at adventure travel rather than say sort of the mass tourism that a lot of uh, it, you know destinations struggle with at the moment. Good, 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 good. And and people will, will, our listeners will start to realize the importance of all of this as we go along. <laughs> so you touch upon educated tourism in your current novel. And the line that struck me was in your novel, and I'm going to quote it here, challenges we face back home and how we deal with them, changing that resource extraction mindset. Can you elaborate on that statement, which is in your novel? Uh, wow, that's another great question. Well, I, I think, you know, I guess the way I would respond is, as we all know, in Canada, we kind of have, you know, as the saying goes, you know, historically been the hewers of wood, the drawers of water, etc. You know, as the as the uh, the famous saying goes, and those are those are really important parts of our economy, even today. But I I spend an awful lot of time because of my background and my current work, thinking about the role that something like adventure tourism can play in our economies moving forward. So I think about it economically, socially, environmentally. So it's not resource extraction per se, but it's a, a really responsive way of using the uh, amazing areas we have in British Columbia. But in you know doing so, we do it in a way that we share experiences rather than 
cut down trees, draw water, you know, take minerals out of the ground. Those are all still important, but it's just a different way of looking at the, you know, the natural areas we have in British Columbia. And I think it's a really exciting area moving forward. I'm pretty biased, I admit that, but I think it's a really interesting way of looking at a, you know, a business sector that can actually achieve lots of different things on our checklist, economically, socially, environmentally. So pretty excited about that. And that's really kind of what I was referencing. And I made that comment in the book. Yeah, because we've got, we have to change. We have to change. I'm, I'm just, we, we, we can't keep going the way we're going. And um, anyways, we'll, we'll get more, we'll, we will get more into that. <laughs> okay, so let's, okay, I just, I wanted the list, our listeners to have an idea, just an idea of where you're from, your background. And so going further into your background, I understand you come from a family of writers. Yeah, you've done your research. I, I do take really great pride in that. Um, I didn't know it when I was younger, but as I've got older, I've recognized it. Um, my grandmother, who was, her name was Henrietta K. Whistler, her married name was Butler, uh, was actually a prolific writer of stories for magazines and newspapers in the Lower Mainland for, for decades while she was raising a family of four boys on Barnstead Island, just upstream of what's now the Portman Bridge. Um, you know, wow. I've got an, I've actually got a coil bound book of pretty much every one of the articles and magazine, you know, mag articles that she's written over the years. And it's a real treasure for you. I look back and obviously it's, it's dated in terms of, you know, it's written in kind of the style of the time. But it really is a, just a wonderful image of who she was as a woman and the kinds of things that she thought were important. Uh, since that time, my father, um, her son, uh, wrote a book about his time on that same island. It's called Island Sojourn. And then I also have a brother who has written two nonfiction books. So yeah, the, the writing kind of runs in the family and I'm hopeful that uh, daughters and even grandchildren will someday take up the pen and continue the, can continue the tradition. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Yes. I, I'm just thinking writing and raising four boys. Oh, <laughs> oh and, and it was, just, most of those articles were really about her, you know, telling the stories of the things that she was challenged with, where there was, you know, recipes and how to can things, but just, just the, the nature of the seasonality of the, of living on a farm on an Island, that kind of thing. It's just, they're just fascinating to, to read now. I'm, I'm getting used to living in a small town after living in a city. So I couldn't even imagine farm <laughs> and an Island. <laughs> yeah. With four boys running around. So you are quoted as saying fiction. Well, obviously like I, I can see now why fiction has always called my name. What was the very first piece of writing you had published and how old were you? Ooh, um, well, this is a funny one, actually. I think um, my very first piece of, of published writing was actually a historical essay. Um, I wrote that in about grade nine, I guess. So that would make me, what, 15, 14, somewhere there, 15, I guess. Um, and it's actually written about the, the town of Headley, which, if anybody knows, the Okanagan is kind of halfway between Karameas and Princeton. It's a little town with some old mining um, works way up in the cliff up above. I actually won an award for that essay from the uh, Okanagan Historical or Okanagan Smilkameen Historical Society, I think it was back then. And I and I still have a rather awkward-looking picture of me receiving the award from a fellow by the name of Buck Crump, C-R-U-M-P, who at the time was the president of the Canadian Pacific Railway. So I didn't even then recognize how prestigious that was to meet a guy like that. But I think the picture of me is, you know, with a very wide tie and an awkward-looking blue um, 
uh, suit jacket on, um, towering over this smaller fellow who was probably uh, a really important historical figure in Canadian history. So pretty, pretty cool. So that was the that was the very first piece that I had published. That's neat. That's very <laughs> neat. Thank you. Any other fiction um, or the historical piece was the kind of like the first, the first, uh, the first attempt, the first, well, I won't say, say attempt, the first success. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Success. <laughs> the first successful piece of fiction at a young age. Well, that wasn't even fiction at the time, quite frankly, it was, that was nonfiction. So it was really just a historical essay, you know, talking about, it was based on lots of research. And so, uh, other than a poem, a really bad, bad poem that was published in a high school um, yearbook of some kind, uh, I didn't even touch fiction until I started this uh, this mystery series that we're talking about today. So it was a long, long gap between starting writing and actually getting to fiction. Most of my, the rest of my work was all nonfiction work, writing for magazines and newspapers, and, and then doing uh, the photographs for the stories as well. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so let's let's get jump into the fiction. Okay. So today we're focusing on uh, your eco-mysteries, the, the Jenny Wilson series. Now, when I first started writing, I had never heard the term, the term eco-mysteries. And I'm excited to hear about a genre which brings environmental issues to the forefront. Uh, Jane Bernard was also on my podcast, and she tackles environmental issues as well in her novels. Now, I understand there's been some banter that eco-mysteries are not new. So for myself and our listeners, are eco-mysteries a new genre? And can you give an estimate? Um, has it been a year or how long have eco-mysteries actually been a, a category and, and are they gaining momentum? Hmm. Um, wow, that's you're challenging me today. This is great. I, I mean, I think you know the from the, the research I've done, it looks like the word eco mysteries or environmental mysteries has only really been used in the last you know three to five years, I think. But I, you know, it, if you look back in in kind of the history of literature, and I, I went back even as far as you know the 1960s, you think about some of the early kind of dystopian literature that was out there. Now they weren't necessarily mysteries, but I, you know, for example, there was a fellow named uh, J.G. Ballard that wrote uh, a story in 1961 called "The Winds from Nowhere," and it was actually based on the idea that you know, or, or a concept that you can actually now call climate change. So he was, you know, 50, 60 years ahead of his time. There's lots and lots of writers that have been writing in this broad genre for a while. Um, you know, CJ Box is pretty popular in the States. Rick Bass, Stephen Legault in Canada here. You mentioned Jane, my, my colleagues in Free Range Writers who we'll talk about more. Um, so all of them have been writing yeah. in that stuff. And even if you look at Margaret Atwood's um, the Mad Adam trilogy, you know, in some ways that was environmental uh, definitely environmental fiction and whether it's a mystery or not is a bit of a different thing. So I think the term itself has been used more and more recently because people are focusing in on the, the mystery genre, but using it to tell stories about, as you said, the kind of environmental or ecological issues that we face as a society. So I think it's pretty exciting because it is, I think, growing momentum because it's a such a wonderful genre to, to kind of highlight those issues. Definitely. So with your first Jenny Wilson novel, Full Curl, that was published in 2017. Then No Place for Wolverines in 2018. 
and now in Rhino We Trust 2019. Now, Full Curl was shortlisted for the Rakuten Kobo Emerging Writers Prize in the Mystery category, as well as shortlisted for the Best Unpublished Crime Manuscript in 2015. And it won the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Novel in 2018. Is it true the first novel, Full Curl, took a little time before being published? <laughs> yes, in short. Um, I actually started writing it in 2014, but you could actually go back further than that. As I mentioned earlier, when I worked as a warden in Banff National Park, um, the seed for this idea actually was born right then, which was, I won't date myself, but you know, a few decades earlier than that. And so if you think about when you know the seed was actually planted, and then I started writing it in 2014, quite a while later, and it wasn't published until uh, three years later, it did take a long time. And of course, that's that whole process of getting the edits done. Um, you know, in my case, um, going to a crime writer's gala dinner and meeting a couple of really influential people who gave me some great advice, and eventually getting a contract with a publisher, and then eventually, after all the edits, again, seeing it, you know, finally when the box arrived in my mail and I cracked it open and that new book smell and pulled out the very first book for the first time. So it was it was a long time coming, but it was well worth it once I cracked that box open for the very first time and saw that that uh, the work I had done as an actual book. That is so true. That is so true. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I like you said, you 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 get that box of your, your novels. And I remember when, see, it took me a while before, before the unraveling finally be, became a book in a, bo in a box. And I remember when I received the box, I'm so excited and gosh, darn it. My husband was in there with the scissors, boom, boom, cutting and he opened the oh. box and I'm just like, Hey. Oh, <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a major no no. That's a major no no. <laughs> yeah, you get it. But then I thought, you know, he he's very supportive of me, and I think he won't say that he's excited. But I thought, okay, he's he's just he's excited to see it as well, right? But I just for a minute, it was like, hey, <laughs> you know, I completely understand. I bet I bet uh, that if you've uh, any books you've written since or will write in the future. He may not make that same mistake again. Yes. Oh, yeah. So do you believe there is a time and a place with regards to novels being accepted? Um, like um, what I'm thinking of, do you believe that an author can write a novel, but it takes the reading public um, time to catch up with the ideas being expressed? Or is it hand in hand? Um, it kind of comes together you know at like the novel is a reflection of what is occurring in society or i don't mm. know am i making yeah no i am i making myself i know what you're saying there sorry to jump yeah <laughs> i mean i think it's it's a it's another amazing question it's very thoughtful i mean i think in my mind you know literature often leads um it, and again if you go back and look at some of the dystopian novels that have been written in the past and some of them you know 50 or 60 or 70 years ago even and you look at something like the term climate change, there was authors way back when talking about um, and describing a world that now, you know, it doesn't look that far off. And in fact, we're pretty darn close yes. to it, if not already, or, or already in the middle of it. 
And I think, you know, in my mind, it's because, you know, most fiction writers like me, particularly in the mystery genre, I think tend to ask the what if questions a lot. And so it's, if you're thinking about the future, whether it's in a science fiction way or, or not, it's kind of easy to ask that what if questions and then say, well, what if this happened? And then what if that happened? And, and before you know it, you're there. So I, I'd love to see some of those authors in the past who have done that and actually describe something that's pretty darn close to right now. You know, the, 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 um, the conversations around George Orwell's 1984 were, um, you know, were, were surprisingly prescient when we got into the last, say, four years or so. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's there's no doubt that novels reflect the current situation as well, right? So I think, you know, the big question in in the, all my writing circles that pretty much every writer faces today is, should I reference the COVID pandemic in my my current works? You know, and the worry is, yes. well, if I do, does that somehow date it? Because we'll look back and say, well, that's you know, that was then, but it's different now. And if, but if I don't, will then readers discount my work because I have ignored it? So it's, it's, I think even now, you know, thinking about what's happening today, it's a, it's a challenge for writers even today to figure out how to reflect what's going on today. If that makes any sense. Yes. Because I have, I have thought about that myself um, with the, the book I'm working on now. Um, And it's so true what you're saying, because I know I, I have, not a lot, but a few, a couple of flashbacks to 1968. And I was talking with my sister and brother-in-law and they very well remember 1968. And I can't remember the name of the author. And I wish, you know, it's, it's, it's in my research, but my sister, Susan, she had said to me, you know, this author was writing about climate change in 1968 hmm. and it's still relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So for full curl, it's a work of fiction. Is it true that it is inspired by a poaching investigation you were involved in when you were working as a park park warden in Dam? Yeah, it's, it's true, Joanna. Um, you know, my then warden partner and I, um, because we found a uh, an elk one day, which once we realized that the um, the antlers had been cut off of it with an axe, we ended up following that through and ended up being involved in in really an international kind of cross border poaching investigation back and forth into the U.S. chasing the guys that were responsible and and also into British Columbia. Um, so that was the seed of an idea for the story. And as I said earlier, that's you know kind of why it took. At, uh, this this uh, idea for Phil Curl was was a long time germinating, if that was the seed. Um, but pretty much everything in the novel changed when I actually ended up writing it, with the exception of that same what if question. And, and the what if question that I tried to pose in this book was, you know, what if someone looked at our national parks as a source of, you know, essentially naive trophy animals? And if they did that, what would they do and how, you know, what would they be willing to do to get those animals and what would that mean? And what would an investigation look if someone tried to do that? So that's really what uh, what came out of that original poaching investigation that I was involved with, and it had turned into the to the first novel in the series. Wow, wow! And that just shows we can't be naive and think that this despicable behavior of poaching doesn't happen here. Yeah, and at the time it was only yeah. you know it was only if I remember correctly the the fine for doing that was only five hundred dollars. So, you know, it was almost like a, you know, we, we kind of joked at the time, but it was like a fun premium. Well, just charge, if you've got a fine for 500, well, so what? It was, it was worth the experience. But nowadays the, the fines are in the, 
uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think in some cases, depending on what, what happens in the park, it could be up to a million. So the, the, the legislation around that has significantly changed and it's a much greater disincentive for people to do that now than it would have been at the time. Good, 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 good. So I understand you're working on a fourth novel set in Alaska, in Alaska. Is the fourth novel going to be in the Jenny Wilson series or is it a new series? Uh, well, actually, actually the, um, the fourth, well, I'm, I'm working on two things, I guess, if you don't mind. I mean, one, I just, I just finished a standalone uh, thriller that's now out with my beta readers and, and with my agent. Um, it, it actually looks at cross-border water issues. So, you know, in essence, the what if would be, or, or in this question, the, 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 um, the question I'm asking is how far would the United States go to get the water it needs for parched areas of the Southwest? So that's kind of the, the premise of the, the current work I'm just finished. And then I'm also about three quarters of the way through a fir the first in a new thriller series, starring a new female character. Her name is Roz Durain. Uh, she's perhaps a bit tougher than Jenny Wilson with a bit of a darker past. So the, the Jenny Wilson series yeah. for now is is done, but I'm really excited about the standalone thriller and then also the getting into this new thriller series, which I hope will get into, you know, multiple books over time. Cool. <laughs> cool. So um, Winona Kent, she was one of my first guests on on the my on this podcast. And she used to work full time. She doesn't anymore. And she has said to me that she still binge <laughs> writes. And sometimes that's what I do. Um, you work full time and you're 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 basically producing a book a year. And I was wondering, what is your writing schedule and are you a binger? <laughs> well, actually, as you said, I still I still have a full-time job, although I'd, I'll admit to say about two or three years ago, I did drop to four days a week just so I had more time to write. Uh, but, you know, to answer your question directly, I mean, I still, I, I, I get up at 5 a.m. every morning uh, and I write for about 90 minutes. And I find that's a really good time of day. And that's even before I head off to work. I, I find my brain is quite fresh then. It's not sort of cluttered with all the stuff from the day. So I basically go, in fact, I was just saying today that I had written some stuff this morning. And when I came back and looked at it this afternoon, just after lunch, I didn't actually remember writing it, which was quite strange. So I use that time to write in the mornings. And then on the Friday is a more of a writing day for me. And then sometimes I'll write for a couple of hours each on Saturday and Sunday. So not as much of a binge writer. I try to do a little bit of writing every day. Uh, amidst you know all the other chores and time to read good books and that kind of thing, but I, I try to keep that practice going a little bit every day if I can. Good, good, yeah, yeah. So, in your current novel, in Rhino, we trust, and so our listeners know, um, your heroine is Jenny Wilson, and I remember years ago it was in. I had to do like I, I had to look this 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 up. In 2003, William Deverell came out with his novel, mm, Slander. Right. Good book. So I, I'm fascinated with the characters writers pick. So I remember at this event, reading event I'd helped organize, I'd asked Mr. Deverell why he wanted to write this book in the female point of view. Um, writers are very selective who they have as characters, especially their protagonist. 
So Dave, my question is, why did you choose to write this series through a female point of view? Hmm. Well, I guess, you know, when I started really looking at fiction, this story in particular, I mean, I always heard when I was kind of doing research on fiction that there was two schools of thought on this, Joanna, as you know, I mean, uh, some people will say, write what you know, and the other school saw, says, write what you don't know and, and learn along the way. I actually started Full Curl as a uh, with a male protagonist, but it just didn't work. And, you know, perhaps it was just too much like me and I was kind of putting myself into the story too much. So I was struggling with it a bit. And I, I don't know why. I don't even remember now exactly why. But at some point there, I just thought, why don't I try this with a female lead, a female heroine, heroine instead? Um, and it just seemed to click. Now, you know, you, you can probably tell I'm not a middle 30s uh, white female. So <laughs> it definitely was uh, writing what I don't know. Uh, and well outside my comfort zone. But I actually found that it worked better in the story because it was, you know, it it uh, created a heroine that had to be in a fairly male-dominated society. So I was able to explore a lot about that. And, you know, pretty much everybody listening to this podcast probably understands that situation one way or another. But when, once I switched that, I I just found that the story really worked. So I had to rely a lot on the, the women in my life, mostly my two daughters who were around that same age, to sort of help me get things right. And they would often say, yeah, dad, that's just that, no, that doesn't make any sense. And so that was super helpful in me sort of getting a lot of the sort of the details right. But once I was rolling with the character and got, you know, kind of inside her head or, or <laughs> more realistically, she was in my head. Um, yeah. it, it kind of, I, I got a better sense of how she would react to things. And then it became a lot more fun and a lot easier to write her in the second and third uh, books in the, in the series. And it, it's interesting because I know I, my spouse and I watched the entire um, Mad Men series on Netflix. And I remember when the female character who wants to be a copy, copy editor, copywriter, they say she's going to get an office and they put her in the photocopier room. <laughs> and my husband, you know, my husband looked at me and he said, they put her in the photocopier room. And I looked at him and I said, I have seen that happen within the last 10 years. And it, it was an eye opener for him. And I'm like, yeah, welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. And then, you know, you get into uh, law enforcement, we have all heard the stories. That's a particularly male dominated world. And it can be really challenging for women to succeed in their current jobs, but also even just to move, move up the ladder and, you know, hit those glass ceilings more often than any of us would like for sure. Yeah, this question I've been I've been waiting all week to ask you this <laughs> evil laugh. <laughs> uh oh. So you do write in the female point of view. I'm having troubles with my words today. You do write in the female point of view very well. I am connected with your heroine Jenny. Now here's the question. Da 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 da. <laughs> So you don't know, you, you know a little bit about me, but you also don't know what type of reader picks up your books. So this is actually kind of a test. How do you think your heroine, Jenny, connected with me so I'd want to continue reading the remainder of the book? Wow. Okay. Um well, I, I guess my answer back to some of these would be, you could probably answer that better than I can, but that doesn't help you. So, I mean, I really think that, or I hope, I guess, that that Jenny Wilson comes across as, 
and it goes back to our, you know, our, the previous uh, question you answered, uh, asked me. I hope she comes across as a, you know, a really a strong, confident woman who really just doesn't take any crap from anybody. So if they put her in a, in a, a closet uh, for her office or photocopy room, she would not take that. And I think what I liked about her is that she finds innovative ways around the hurdles that that get thrown at her. And but at the same time, she operates on a pretty high moral and ethical plane. So it's not like she does anything kind of underhandedly. She just does things because she believes they're right. And I think that's a that's a fundamental story that a lot of people can believe in. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, and I, I had a lot of fun with this and I, I joke about this because I, you know, in my day job, I have to be fairly diplomatic because I deal with government all the time and and other kinds of situations where I just I can't. Uh, I have to be careful what I say, although the more I get into my career, the, the less that is true. <laughs> um, Jenny tends to say things out loud that, that most of us would never, day, uh, would never say, and that includes me. So I've I, often situations, I kind of have fun with her because she's saying things out loud that I would maybe think in my head but never say. So I like that about her, and I, and I maybe hope you did too, because that is strong, confident, but actually you know, willing to take no crap from anybody and, and say what she thinks. Yes, yes. That yes, and I have an uh, I have an example, an exact example, and I the reason why I wanted to ask this is because, you know, we're we're as writers we're told we need to connect with our readers, and it's like okay, how do you go about doing this? Okay, because I don't you know you can get some analytics, but unless I'm going to camp out at a bookstore, you know, trying to see who exactly is buying my you know buying my books, so. I have to say this example. So it's near the beginning of the book. And in actual fact, I'm probably embarrassing myself here. But near the beginning of the book, Jenny is on a bus. And she has just arrived at the Etosha. Am I saying that right? You are. You got it. You nailed it. Okay. Etosha National Park. <laughs> And Jenny says, this got a smile on my face. And I thought, I'm with you, you know. And so she's just arrived at the park. And um, someone asks her a question, asks her a question, and she says, I stink, said Wilson, sniffing her armpit. I need a shower. And the reason why that made me laugh is because I used to be a fitness instructor and I would come home. And granted, I didn't have to sniff my armpit, okay? But I would come home <laughs> and my husband would have supper ready and it'd be warm and he'd like, oh, supper's ready. And I'd look and I'd be like, and literally that's what I'd say. I go, I stink. <laughs> I, I, I am not going to sit down to this lovely meal smelling like this. Right? <laughs> so I wanted at the risk of embarrassing myself, but I just, it's sometimes it's even the littlest things that will, grab that reader and that reader will be like, okay, I like this girl. She's human. Right. So, well, thanks for that. And I, you know, and I think the, uh, the, uh, I laugh at that because that's, uh, that's so true. And it's those little things I think that can make the difference. And I, and I also find, you know, as you get uh, into a series, which I think that, you know, the, uh, the right mystery series have that advantage is that when you go to your book launches in the olden days, when we did book launches, uh, in person, yeah. and when you have book signings at libraries and bookstores and that kind of thing, it's also a, a chance to kind of get a get a 
get an opportunity to to see who comes in the door and shows interest and, and wants to talk to you and and see who's buying the books and and i did find as you said that my readers tend to be more women than men i think that's very cool um and, and i'm learning that over time because it's those little things i think they can make the difference between making it plausible and and, and not so much right right so i think we're going to finish this podcast this is part one um our listeners Uh, We will continue with Dave Butler in part two of our discussion. So everybody have a good day and uh, yeah, come back for part two. 